My little boy Matthew, who's usually here terrorizing the lobby while we worship, we adopted him out of foster care in Florida. Now, he knows that he's been adopted. He may not have full comprehension of what that means yet. And the reason I know that is because the other day in the car we were riding along and he asked me, he suddenly understood what the meaning of last names were. It was like, wait, they're a Harper? Who, they're, tell me everybody whose last name is Harper. That was the request. And I'm like, like everybody that's ever come before me? Like, what's the scope of this request here? My grandparents, my great-grandparents, how far back in this little tree do you want to go? And I said, your Aunt Cheryl was a harper, and now she's a pool. And he's like, wait, what? This was like, rock, this, was like this whole new identity thing. He was like, I thought I was only a harper or something. I don't know what it was, but his, his eyes were open to the idea that my whole family's last name is Harper, not just his. He has a whole new identity because we adopted him out of foster care. Now, I tell him when he complains, you know you hit the lottery, right? You know, like, like you could be back in Florida in your old circumstances, and now you're an only kid in Starkville, you know what I mean? And like, it's Starkville. You've hit the lottery. So he's got this whole new identity because of adoption. His, his, his birth family could not care for him. They tried to work through the foster care system and get their act back together, but they were not able to. And eventually they, just, they, left, let, they surrendered their rights and allowed him to be adopted by us. And his birth mom was like, we know he'll be better off with you. His trajectory, his circumstances, his, the state he lived in, everything about who he was is completely new because he came to live with us. He has a whole new identity. And we're starting a brand new journey into, really it's a theological jump through, or thematic jump through the book of 1 Peter. So it's not going to be a verse-by-verse 1 Peter series. It is major theological tenets of the book of 1 Peter, all right? So we're going to start there. And so what Peter does is he's writing to a group of Christians who have been dispersed from Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. Roman Empire has come in, torn down the temple, kicked them out, sent, and they've scattered all over the Mediterranean Sea. And he's writing a letter to a group of people that he calls the dispersion. That's what he's talking about. But in three, verse, three short verses we're going to read today... He sets up the theological drive of his whole letter. Okay? In fact, you could argue that what he puts in these three verses I'm about to read are what I call presuppositions. And let me explain what a presupposition is in case you don't know. You might know because you're smart. But a presupposition is the, the set of beliefs or truths that, sure, that serve the foundation for how you see things. You may have heard it talked about in another way in other churches or other places as a worldview. But it's more than worldview. It is a basic assumption that colors how you experience events. Because worldview is like, okay, I believe this about this, and I believe this about this. I'll give you an example in a minute. But a fundamental truth, I got one for you, since it's fall and the first game was yesterday. What's your presupposition about Mississippi State football? What's your presupposition about going to a game in September? I assumed 105 degrees yesterday. That was my presupposition. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to go. It was cloudy in 85. And so I didn't get roasted. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was warm, but I didn't get burnt. But my presupposition was September football game equals pain and suffering, both on the field and in the stands. Right? What are our presuppositions about Mississippi State? Six and six would be good. You know what I mean? That's a presupposition. 
You go to the game expecting 10 and 2, but in your heart of hearts, you get, there's a fundamental truth that says, yeah, 6 and 6 would be good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's a spiritual, in the spiritual realm, it is a belief about God, it's a belief about our faith, it's a belief about Scripture that changes or sets the way we think about the world. You, if this is true about God, then it means this. And so Peter, in these first few verses, is giving us some of his presuppositions of where he is writing this letter to a group of Christians in dispersion. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's three short verses. They're all basically, it's one big Greek sentence, I think, actually. If you just go like, it's like one run-on sentence. Teachers will appreciate that. But he has these, these underlying theological tenets there. And the first one is right in the very first part of that verse. It says, blessed be the God, of our Father, God our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that blessed be God phrase is a Hebrew phrase. In the Old Testament, it's hesed. It's God's special blessing. So he's blessing God. He's praising God and praying his special blessing on God the Father. And it's a Hebrew thing. So Peter, being a good Hebrew, would be drawing from that, from his knowledge but then he brings it forward to the New Testament because he doesn't say just be, blessed be God, right? He says, blessed be God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's carried it by, just by adding that phrase about Jesus. He's carried a Hebrew blessing and made it a New Testament blessing. He's equating Jesus with God. And he is drawing Jesus in and saying Jesus is the fulfillment of what God originally intended. In fact, he's so focused on Jesus in this letter. I didn't read the first three verses. He mentions the name Jesus four times in the first three verses of the book. Jesus is central to his letter. And he's equated him with God by saying he is blessed. And that phrase, that title, the way he names him, Lord Jesus Christ, that is a holy name of God being bestowed on Jesus. So this is not blessed my, my rabbi who used to teach me stuff. Is God the Father and Son are equally blessed. Then he says, it is by his great mercy that he has given us new birth. So blessed, God should be praised for this. Jesus should be prayed for this, praised for this because he has given us a new birth, a new identity. Like Matthew, you can be a harper too. You know what I mean? Like he's got a whole new thing there. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. Now, there's a presupposition in there. And the presupposition is that where salvation comes from is from God. Where does our salvation come from? It does not come from our ability to be good people. It comes from His great mercy, first of all. In other words, the ability to be saved, the ability to have a relationship with God, has been extended to us because God was gracious and merciful to do so. If you dial it all the way back to the Garden of Genesis, what could God have chosen to do? 
dry erase board, new heavens, new earth, start over, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, he could have just like etch-a-sketched the whole thing. Here's a 1970-something reference for you. He could have just shook the whole thing up and started over. But he didn't. In the very beginning of the chapter, what he did do, he says, I've set a plan to restore what you've set off kilter by sinning. And that plan has been in motion. And by his great mercy, he extended salvation to us through Jesus. And that sal- in that salvation, or the presupposition in the heart of that salvation, is a new identity in Christ. You're no longer who you were. You're now something new. Matthew is no longer what his previous name was. He's now a harper. He has a new identity because he's been adopted. Right? And so because we were willing to take on the, the role of being a foster parent, we were willing to take him into our home permanently by our great mercy. Matthew's a harper. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because we were willing to love him anyway and take, pulled him out of those circumstances, he has a whole new, literally, last name. Right? And, Paul, and Peter is saying the same thing. By God's great mercy, you have been given new birth. Second part of verse 3. Let's talk about new birth. Where would Peter have gotten the idea that you had to have new birth in order to be saved? Could it have been walking around with Jesus who had told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Is it possible that Peter learned from Jesus that there's a complete reset involved in salvation, that your old self can't get the job done, that you need to be a new creation in Jesus? The old's gone, the new is here. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That born again phrase, that's a church phrase, right? We say that in church a lot. I was born again when I, was, when I prayed the prayer, when I was 13, you know. But that's when your new identity started, literally. New birth is spiritual. I mean, even Nicodemus answered Jesus and goes, how does somebody, poor poor Nicodemus, right? How do I go back to mom and start over? How does that work, right? He goes, aren't you calling, and Jesus' retort was, don't you call yourself a scholar of Israel? You not get it? This was originally God's plan. That The fall happened, sin happened, and into the end of that plan, God said, I am sending a Messiah, and he was promised all through the Old Testament. And unless you're born of water and the blood and the Spirit, you are not reborn. You have no new identity. You have to do that. Now, that new birth comes from the mercy of God and our faith in response to that benevolent mercy bestowed by God. A new home, a new life, a new way of living, a new way of seeing the world. If you became a new person tomorrow, how would your presuppositions change? I know that's a weird sci-fi way to say it. But if you were literally somebody else tomorrow, would your, and your circumstances were different, and your place you lived was different, and everything you knew had changed, how would your world change? Pretty significantly, right? All of a sudden you're living, no, I won't say that, the school up north. No. All of a sudden, you're in Oxford. (laughs) How would your perspective change? You know what I mean? Like, sorry I put that on you this morning. You know what I mean? How would your circumstances, if you pick up and you move to Florida tomorrow, your Februarys are a lot warmer. What would your presuppositions be about the weather? How would that change the way you see the world? Everything is sand. 
<laughs> you know, like whatever. Your whole perspective would change. A new birth is a new identity. And that new identity in Christ has implications that we're going to discuss going forward in this sermon series because these are the foundational presuppositions, right? God's, God blessed us through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us a new birth, a new citizenship, a new kingdom. Jesus said in John 3, he said, when you are born again, then you'll be able to see the new kingdom of God. You're not a citizen of the old world anymore. You're a citizen of the new. You are not who you weren't once were. Back to verse 3 for just a second here. Where's verse 3? There it is. Okay. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this new identity sets you up for two things, living hope and an inheritance. I don't know about you, but living hope sounds a little redundant. Right? Because what's dead hope? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if I have hope, then, I have, then my dreams are still alive. My, ch- my, my desires are still alive. I still have hope for 10 and 2. You know what I mean? <laughs> Those dreams might be crushed in the coming weeks. But right now, my hope is alive. So living hope sounds redundant. How can it be hope unless it's alive? But our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Paul even says this, that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we should be considered the most foolish among all people. That if what Jesus said he did and what Jesus did did not happen, what are we doing here in church on Sunday? We have a living hope because Jesus is still alive and with us. So that new identity is found in Christ, and because of that, we have a living hope to be resurrected the way he was resurrected. And that hope is made possible, and it's guaranteed by his life, his death, and especially his resurrection. He's not, he's not raised from the dead. We are people most pitied and people without possible hope. So there's your presupposition, right? If I call myself a follower of Jesus, then I have living hope, a hope in a living God who promises not only did he save us, but he will return again one day. John 14, I've gone to prepare a place for you. No worry, when I'm gone, I will send, a, I will send the Holy Spirit to help you. But one day I will return and I will take you there. We have living hope as a world presupposition. That when this world is not working the way we want it to, and when this world does not feel the way it ought to feel, which is often, Right? Pain, suffering, anguish, death, exams, papers. (laughs) Like when the world does not feel as it ought to feel, we still have a living hope. And that hope is in something, it's in a citizenship in a totally different kingdom. Because if our hope is in this world, we're in trouble. We have a new identity. We belong to a new family. We have citizenship in a new kingdom because of what Jesus did. And so when we're faced with that stuff, that is the, the presupposition is, I don't care how bad it gets, I have a living hope. 
Now, it also says an inheritance. And I love it because he gives like three words there for it. He says, he says that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, the beauty of an you all know what an inheritance is, right? When your family passes down something to you after they pass away, it's in a will, it's how, that's how that works. You get to inherit whatever it is they're passing on to you. Now, by proxy of Matthew being my adopted son, he gets to inherit whatever I leave behind. <laughs> Poor guy. No, but he gets to, he's, he is the heir to everything that we have, right? But he's already the heir. It already belongs to him. He doesn't have it yet. Or there's an aspect of it he does not have yet. So in, I was sorry to say inherit and inheritance, but that'd be really tongue-tying. Instilled in the idea of inheritance is there's a part of it we already have. We are already in Christ. We already have a new identity. We are already forgiven from our sin. We already have a living hope. But there's an unrealized aspect to it that's our inheritance. It's what I alluded to in John, when I talked about John 14. This living with God forever in eternal lives, free from sin, free from anger, free from tears and depression and sorrow and grief and all of those things will go away. That's our inheritance. In fact, remember I told you Peter is writing this to a group of people who were scattered from Jerusalem. Now the Hebrews would tell you that their inheritance was primarily tied to the possession of land. If you go back and you read the Old Testament and they're going into the promised land, Moses lays it out for them and says, this group will inherit this piece and this tribe will inherit this piece. It might have been Joshua by then. This tribe will inherit this part. And they divided the promised land among the 12 tribes of Israel. And that became their inheritance. And if you continue on into the Old Testament, what you notice is when they would reach extreme financial hardship, they would sell their family inheritance to somebody else to pay for it, and they'd be indebted to them. And one of the things that Jesus or that God installed was this year of Jubilee where those debts were removed and family land was returned to the original family. So their idea of inheritance was land, the promised land, literally, right? Now, Flash forward to New Testament. Our inheritance is not a plot of grass or desert in Israel. What is our inheritance? It's a piece or a part of the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. It's still a place. It's still a new creation. It's still a new kingdom. It's an established kingdom. It's no longer a garden. It's no longer the promised land in Israel. It is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And because we belong to him and have a new identity in that kingdom, we stand to inherit part of that kingdom. But those people listening to this letter would go, wait, wait, there's an inheritance tied into this? That's a significant word for them. And then he throws in there, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You could say that the inheritance that we stand to gain, that they stood to gain, is not touched by death, it's not stained by evil, and it's unimpaired by time. The inheritance that we haven't realized yet, and sometimes that makes it hard because you can't see it, is both 
immortal, pure, and beautiful, both. Immortal, pure, and beautiful. Undefiled, not tainted by evil, lasts forever, not bound by time, and it's guaranteed by the Father in heaven. We have, because we have a new identity in Christ, by God's great mercy. Now, add that to this presupposition of heaven someday or eternal security or hope in Jesus, and you realize this is way more, about way more than salvation of your soul. This is about partnering with God for eternity in a new kingdom that we stand to inherit. And we've got a piece of the puzzle now. We've got a relationship with God. We've got forgiveness from our sin. We've got some things in place in our life that give us hope. But there's a much greater thing coming that we can't even hope or imagine. And then verse 5, it gets even better, if that's possible. Uh, are kept, are, it's been kept in heaven for you. So that's I said, that's the part that's not realized yet, right? But he says, for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only do we have a new identity, not only do we have a living hope, not only do are we stand to inherit this kingdom with Jesus, but we are protected now by God and the inheritance is protected by the power of God. It's ironic and a little bit paradoxical that it's the faith that you have that gives you the identity in Jesus that puts you in opposition to the world so that you'd be unsafe. These folks were dispersed by the Roman Empire, right? Their livelihood was threatened. Their inheritance was ripped away. They were being persecuted. They were being executed. They were being dismissed for being Christian. We don't have a clue of what it means to be persecuted as Christians. We can't imagine that. You don't go out of here wondering if you're going to be killed for being a Christian. You don't go out of here wondering if the government's going to show up tomorrow and take your house away because they found out you followed Jesus. But that's what those Christians faced. And so when they're hearing these words from Peter and they say that you have a new identity in a kingdom and that inheritance is protected by the power of God, it's a little paradoxical that by entering into the kingdom, you're now unsafe. Except you're not unsafe because you're protected by the power of God. But you wouldn't need protection if you didn't have faith in God because the world would be okay with you. You see what I mean? By placing your faith in Jesus, you set your worldview, you set your presuppositions, you set your way of seeing the world in, in competition with or against the way the world sees things. And that's a threat to them. The world says, who has the most toys wins. Jesus says... I didn't consider equality was something to be grasped, but gave up that to follow to sacrifice myself for you. Have the same mindset. Be like Christ, willing to sacrifice anything and everything. Be willing to die for your neighbor. That is the greatest act of love, Jesus said, is to die for someone else. That is a counter-cultural stance on life. The nothing I have is so sacred, I'm not willing to surrender it for the sake of the kingdom of God. Versus who has the biggest scorecard wins. And so when you say yes to Jesus, you're rejecting something else. 
You're rejecting the values and the passions and the desires of the world, which means you're actually in opposition to the way the world is. That's why Jesus promised that if you follow him, the world would hate you because of him. And we still don't get it because we're not being threatened to the edge of our life walking out this door. But you know what I mean when you say this is our value, this is what scripture teaches, and the world goes, that's archaic and out of date and wrong. You're crazy. Then you understand that your worldview is in opposition. Your presuppositions about the way the world works or ought to work is in direct opposition to the way the world sees things. And it can cost you. It can cost you friendships. It can cost you job opportunities. It can cost you something. Because you're not rolling with where the world wants to go. But our living hope and our inheritance that already belongs to us and the protection by God that already belongs to us are the presuppositions that underscore the Christian life. I belong to Jesus. I have a new identity. I have hope and stand to inherit and partner in the kingdom with Jesus. Right? Actually, there's an already to the kingdom now and kingdom later part that I left out of this, right? We're already in partnership in kingdom work with Jesus. Anytime we display God's love to others, kingdom. <laughs> Anytime we act like a church, follow God or are obedient to God, kingdom. If God is love, then where we're displaying love, we're displaying God. You with me? Already. And then one day we stand to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And so if we have hope in both now and then we are protected by the very power of God. Now, if those are your presuppositions for living as a Christian, how does that change how you live Monday to Saturday? By the way, notice the order. It's not live Monday to Saturday to get those things. It is because of those things are true. I live this way. We always get that backwards. We always think we've got to do more for Jesus so he'll love us. We get a greater share of the inheritance if we do good. That's backwards. Matthew did not get his inheritance by virtue of being Matthew. He did not become a part of my family because of anything he did. He became part of my family because his family couldn't care for him and because we loved him and took him into our home and kept him. Not because he earned it, not because he had done something special. Oh, we like that one and not that one. Just because we chose to do so. You cannot earn that citizenship. You cannot earn God's love one, by doing one thing more. You just are his children. Peter says that salvation, that identity comes from faith in the great God who provided the way through. Let's pray. Gracious Lord. Help us to embrace our living hope. Help us to embrace these presuppositions that you have bestowed mercy upon us. You have given us a new identity. And you are the one who cannot fail in your promised inheritance. Lord, this morning, help that shape how we live and love and interact with a world that so desperately needs to experience those that living hope too. In your precious Son, Jesus' name, amen.